Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce our latest guest is my producer, Sari Suffer. So another great guest today, Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, who many may recognize as the manager of Trump's Senate impeachment trial with the best outfits. <laughs> yeah, she had that awesome blue cape dress that people mm-hmm. were making into memes of Superwoman which is not far off from what she's truly like. (laughs) She's a really interesting person, um, has had a very interesting career, started as a Republican, became a Democrat later. But what makes her unique in Congress is she is a delegate that represents the 100,000 plus residents of the Virgin Islands, which it's a U.S. territory. But as a delegate, she doesn't have the right to vote on the House floor. Right. Plus, there are no senators that represent the territories and the people of the Virgin Islands and other territories can't vote in federal elections. Yeah. So just a quick distinctions. There are five give us a, delegates. Give us, give us a little lesson here, yeah, Sarah. a little history lesson. <laughs> so um, there are five delegates in Congress for the territories of the American Samoa, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands and the U.S. Virgin Islands and D.C., Puerto Rico has a resident commissioner in Congress. And then the difference between D.C. and the rest of them is that D.C. residents pay federal income taxes and can vote in federal elections. People in the territories can't. So Stacey being a delegate to one of those territories, the Virgin Islands, uh, means that she made history during that Senate impeachment trial because she was the first delegate to serve as an impeachment manager. She also made history in another way. She was the only Black woman in the Senate chamber during that trial. Black women like myself who are sick and tired of being sick and tired for our children. And so I That's really something to consider, right? Yeah. When you imagine that in that whole chamber with the entire United States um, Senate there, that she was the only Black woman. Everyone's calling her a breakout star. Joining us, Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett. One She's of those lawmakers, Delegate Stacey Plaskett, who to Stacey Plaskett, who represents... A lot of people didn't know your name before, and now they do. You have gained trust and attention of a whole lot more people in the last week. We've learned that there's no such thing as overnight success. So she actually has been working in the public sector for decades. Um, she's been a congresswoman since 2014. Um, but, you know, people are always shocked when this woman bursts onto the scene and stands out. <laughs> like, it's not possible she's been toiling in the shadows. She must be in case of overnight success. Absolutely. She's also said she's um, uncomfortable with the attention, but she has been using it to elevate the issues of the territories. Yeah, I'm super interested to talk to her about that and some of the history of the Virgin Islands. And then, of course, we need to, you know, debrief her onto on the impeachment trial, mm-hmm. um, her proudest moment from the trial and how she feels about how it all played out in the end. So let's get to it. Congresswoman Plaskett, it's real honor to have you here. Thanks. Thanks for having me. You know, the whole country got to know you the last couple of weeks during the impeachment trial. And right. I wanted to have you on to talk about that. But also, it's just there's so many questions about representation mm-hmm. and voters feeling disenfranchised. And mm. I asked people on Twitter, I said that I was going to get to talk to you and what kind of questions they had. And I got so many questions about the Virgin Islands and nice. the fact that you as a member of Congress don't have a vote in the chamber and that people in the Virgin Islands don't and wanted to you know talk about all of these things. but. Your outfits, I have to say, on the house, on the Senate floor did make me feel 
for the first time that I want to get dressed up again. (laughs) (laughs) Those are my college roommates dressing me. Yes, I heard that. Um, So I just want to start at the beginning. You grew up in New York in Brooklyn, right? Yep. My parents are older siblings Mm -hmm. in really large families, and they came to New York in the 1950s. They've known each other since the fourth grade. They're still married. I don't understand that, but, you know, they're almost one organism now. I was raised in New York, sent down to the Virgin Islands quite a bit. I always thought I was going down for vacations, and I realize now that um, my parents told me that, you know, they needed to send me there because it was cheaper than finding babysitting so that they can work overtime and double time at their jobs so that they could have more money to send back home. Oh, You actually brought up your upbringing on the Senate floor during the trial. And I just want to play that because it was so powerful. I've learned throughout my life that preparation and truth can carry you far, can allow you to speak truth to power. I've learned that as a young black girl growing up in the projects in Brooklyn, housing community on St. Croix, sent to the most unlikeliest of settings, and now as an adult woman representing an island territory speaking to the U.S. Senate. How did you learn those lessons about preparation and truth growing up? So, you know, my parents decided that I was going to have the best and work towards that. My mother would read the New York Times on Thursday that had an education section And whatever she saw in there that she thought would further me, that's what I had to do. And so I, although we lived in the neighborhoods we lived in, I didn't go to schools with everyone else. Mm -hmm. So I went to Brooklyn Friends, which is a Quaker school in downtown Brooklyn. So I was the kid that had to take it on the subway away from everybody and go to school and then come back into the neighborhood And then I'd have to have more creds than everybody else because I went to those white schools. Mm -hmm. So, you know, my blackness would be challenged by everybody, which means that I'm very good at fighting because you better be able to handle yourself or else people realize that you're kind of weak and then you become a prey. And then my mother read about this program called A Better Chance, Mm -hmm. the ABC program, which was an organization that sends minority students to private schools. And I ended up going away to boarding school for four years for high school. I went to Choate, which was a very different experience. And while there, how was that? You know, I really had the feeling that there were so few of us there and that we were being watched so carefully that if I didn't do well, it would be difficult for other students after me, other minority students to have the same opportunity. And so I was always kind of pushing myself And so just being overprepared because you never know what's going to happen. I can recall my senior year at Choate. I mean, I had been president of my class for a number of years, always did well academically, played sports. It's a lot. (laughs) But, you know, doing all of that and my senior year Mm -hmm. in the advisor's report, they wrote this write-up about me that was based on another student saying something about me. And that other student was you know, a white, very wealthy student who was always in trouble, who had always been suspended. I mean, I never had detention or anything. 
And she never even asked me if it was true. She just assumed it was true because I was Black, you know, when I came from where I came. And that kind of like struck me that I can do so much of what they expect of me, and yet I can still be held down. And they're always looking for something that, yeah, something that would ex- make this make sense, something that's right. not right, right about her. Right. So it kind of shifted my notion of, uh, I'm not necessarily going to be accepted by them, but I've got to use this opportunity for whatever good it's going to be, whether it's for me or my community or others. Um, my parents say that's unfortunate because it means that I've been in public service more than I've been in the private sector. Right. They feel like they feel like it hasn't paid off. Right, right, right. For them, at least for them. <laughs> my my youngest daughter said, "Grandma says you're not the best daughter." And I was thinking to myself, it's going to be because I don't call enough or something. I was like, well, why is that? She said, because you haven't been able to buy them a house yet. I'm like, they have their own house now. She's like, yeah, but they said, you know, all their other friends, their kids who are lawyers and doctors can take them on trips and stuff. I'm like, well, I'm not that kind of lawyer. I'm not that kind of lawyer. But I always feel a calling, you know, Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, the community or a job is calling to me. Like I... I I have to do this, mm-hmm. that I'm taking this on. Only I, only I can do this. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Right? Um, so Virgin Islands, let's talk about when did you decide to run for office there? And also just I think people don't understand the rights and representation of a Virgin sure. yeah, Islander. I moved to the Virgin Islands in 2005 because I wanted to get off of the grid. Oh, and Sounds appealing. Wanted to leave, <laughs> wanted to leave the rat race of D.C. and New York and live a different life. You know, I just can't take it anymore. <laughs> and when I, I was working in the private sector and I was working for Tony Welters at United Health Group, and I came into the office and told him mm-hmm. that I'm going to resign. I'm leaving. I'm moving back to my family's home in the Virgin Islands. I'm taking a job with a law firm down there. Just leading a quiet life. Maybe I'm going to write a book. And he just started laughing (laughs) like you, but I mean, like, like falling back laughing. And I was like, boss, what, what, he's like, so what is it? You need a vacation? Are you looking for a raise? I was like, no, Tony, I'm really serious. And he was like, oh, bullshit. I was like, no, I'm really going to do this. And he's like, okay, okay. You're just tired. I'm going to leave your job open or a comparable job for two years. Wow. Because you're, you're not going to stay down there. You're raised in New York. You've been in D.C., New York working. Mm-hmm. That's not your life. And, you know, I always hit them up for donations, contributions to my campaign. I tell them the only way you can keep me back in D.C. is if you continue to contribute to me. Or else I'll have to just go back there, down there full time. I'm going to stay forever this time. <laughs> but I went down because there had been a sense that had been given to me as a young person by my parents and by others is that the Virgin Islands has this tremendous brain drain. Mm. And that what is the point of all of your experiences and your education if you're not able to affect the community down there, you know? And in the Virgin Islands, we say, you know, the ancestors are calling you. We we have a very real sense of our past. Oh, interesting. 
who you belong to. You know, Jennifer, you come down in there like, Jennifer, who you belong to? Who's your mother? Who's your father? Mm-hmm. Who's, what's your mother's maiden name? Women, my mother's generation and, and before her, always have used their maiden names as well. But it's not as a sense of independence. It's a sense of identification because people want to know who you belong to. So I went down because I felt like I'd gotten all of these skills in the mainland and needed to bring it back home to our people. And at times it can be a little lonely, you know, because so many of our professional class have left there because of lack of jobs, lack of opportunities, lack of access to things. And I've seen waves of it, even in the time that I've been there, the Great Recession happens and it's a great recession here, and it's, you know, the Great Depression for us. The oil refinery closes, and our unemployment goes from 6% to 18% in seven months. So it's always a sense of how do we create an environment where my children, my family's children can have a place to go back to if they wanted to have opportunities to thrive there. Or for what else would our ancestors have done what they did? You know, the Virgin Islands is one of only two places in the Western Hemisphere that received their freedom through violent overthrow. So Haiti and the Virgin Islands are the only two places where that happened. In the Virgin Islands, the slaves organized over many months, and we were still owned by Denmark at the time. The Danes were known, although now they're the happiest nation in the world, Mm -hmm. were known as the most oppressive form of slavery in the Western Hemisphere. Oh, my God. And when was this? What years were we talking about? So we received our freedom 15 years before the Emancipation Proclamation, and it was slaves organizing an insurrection to the point that when they went to the fort to claim their freedom with whatever weapons they had, go to the fort to challenge the Danish gendarmes and the soldiers there. They put the cannons facing the slaves and realized that the slaves had, over a period of months, replaced the gunpowder with molasses. Oh my God, genius. So good. But I think the great genius in that is that no one told. Right. We had no narcs (laughs) in the group. (laughs) There could be a very big incentive to narc on something like that. I imagine that you could benefit quite a bit, an individual could, in that situation. Exactly. But nobody did. And so, you know, we have Virgin Islanders, people like Alexander Hamilton, right? right? Oh, right. Who, he comes to the United States because Virgin Islanders pooled their money together. Right. He wrote a piece in the local paper, and they said, this is a smart young man. We are, we as merchants need to support him. Let's pool our money together so that he can go to college in the colonies. We have individuals like Denmark Vesey, who was a free man. He was called Denmark because he came from the Danish West Indies Mm -hmm. and came to South Carolina. He was one of the founders of Mother Emanuel and started the Charleston slave insurrection. And he was free. Uh, There's a town named after him in South Carolina. Right. He was a free man who gave up his life so that others would be free. And so Virgin Islanders, you know, really have the sense that we have something tremendous to offer. But we are in a place where we don't have the resources to do that. 
We are one of several territories, including Puerto Rico, American Samoa, Guam, Northern Marianas, where we live in a perpetual state of being a territory. Prior to the 1900s, you know, the Northwest Ordinance and before, a place is a territory until it reaches a certain size, and then it is considered for admission into the Union. Uh, in the early 1900s, there were several Supreme Court cases, the insular cases that were written by the same justice who wrote Plessy v. Ferguson, mm -hmm. who said that the people of the territories are alien nations who cannot understand Anglo-Saxon principles of law, and therefore, until such time that they are able to understand or comprehend um, these laws because they are savage races, that they should not be given a pathway to statehood. For those who don't know or have forgotten, Plessy versus Ferguson was the Supreme Court ruling that upheld racial segregation under the terms of separate but equal. Right. And these cases are still being upheld by every administration. Trump, Obama, Bush, Clinton, Bush have all upheld the insular cases uh, when we fight against them. And so we then are placed in a position where we have a member that sits in Congress who has a vote in committee, mm -hmm. has seniority in committees, right. but when the Dems are in power, we vote on amendments on the floor, but not on final passage. Right. When Republicans are in control, we don't do anything on the floor except for debate. Oh, I didn't realize that. We can make motions. We uh, have bills. You know, the most frustrating thing is to see people voting on a bill for your constituents and you don't have a vote yeah. on that bill. And knowing that my grandfather and his generation, when they became part of the United States, came to Washington and insisted that we be part of the draft because we said we want to do our duty. We want the responsibility along with the privileges of being American citizens. Even though, you know, my grandfather was born before the sale of 1917. And in 1917, when we were sold from Denmark to the United States for 25 million in gold, all of that money went to Denmark. It moved them out of a depression that then put them on the path to being the happiest nation in the world. And we received no money for that. And Denmark got the American government to agree not to give us citizenship. And so for 10 years, we were citizens of nowhere. We had no citizenship anywhere and could not bring grievances. So the Danish government during that 10-year period also extracted enormous wealth off of the island because we didn't have a voice or someplace to send our grievances to at that point. And so you have presidents like Hoover coming to visit the Virgin Islands and saying, this is the greatest poorhouse in our nation. You know, I try and use my platform to talk to the administration, talk to other members of Congress of saying that, listen, the Caribbean region is a really important one. China, Venezuela are really moving into this area and yeah. utilizing it as transshipment of oil from Africa, goods to Europe. They are making treaties and agreements with other Caribbean nations. You know, the dependence of other small island nations on Venezuela and Cuba is extreme because they don't have a good partner in the United States. And so a small place like the Virgin Islands 
could really be a great example for them, a great beacon for them to trust the United States and utilize these islands for our support. Mm -hmm. So um, just really trying to use my voice to try and bring some economic equity to the territory so that it, it can be a place where people can make the decision, do I want to live there or do I want to live in the mainland? Well, it's quite a, I mean, it's quite a journey from talking about, you know, Alexander Hamilton, but then Denmark Vesey coming from that island mm -hmm. to the United States, trying to emancipate right. other Black Americans there. Your family right. coming here, you going back, right? You're the mm -hmm. one who's returned. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're telling me things that I'm, you know, 54 years old, worked in politics for a long time that I have, did not know. What strikes me is telling that story about how the insular areas are not allowed any kind of representation and there are court cases about this that administrations continue to uphold as we're reconsidering indigenous rights, as we're reconsidering sure. you know, the impact of race overall in the country, that mm -hmm. you're positioned to make a real difference here. Let's hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I feel confident and I feel very confident. Well, you know, there's, you, you know, I'm, I'm sharing my story, but I know there are so many other stories in this country of places and peoples that have really enriched this nation, but don't feel like they've been celebrated or acknowledged, right? Right. Even small places in West Virginia, amazing, rich stories of supporting the union, right? Yep. And the work that they've done and the industry that they have shown in coal mines and other places. That's a story that I, as a New York kid, didn't know until willing to sit down and have those discussions with other people. We have to take a quick break now, but when we get back, I want to get into your role in Trump's Senate impeachment trial and how you think everything leading up to it, including the Capitol insurrection, will go down in history. That's next on Just Something About Her with Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett. The consequences of his conduct were devastating on every level. Police officers were left overwhelmed, unprotected, Congress had to be evacuated. Our staff barricaded in this building, calling their families to say goodbye. Some of us, like Mr. Raskin, had children here. And these people in this building, some of whom were on the FBI's watch list, took photos, stole laptops, destroyed precious statues, including one of John Lewis desecrated the statue of a recently deceased member of Congress who stood for nonviolence. This was devastating. And the world watched us. And the world is still watching us to see what we will do this day. And we'll know what we did this day 100 years from now. That was Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett at the Senate impeachment trial of former President Trump talking about the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th. Congresswoman Plaskett, welcome back to Just Something About Her. I want to kind of turn your statement back on you and ask how you think that moment, both the insurrection and the acquittal of Donald Trump, will be remembered 100 years from now. That's a great question. Well, I love history. 
I read a lot of history in my spare time, what spare time I have. I was a history major. And I cannot believe that the attempted coup of a country by its own president would not be known in history. Right? I suspect it will be. I think we had a hard time processing what, what you happened? just said and real you know it right. it's so fantastic it's so outside of our modern experience mm-hmm. what do you think it's going to be remembered as i think it will show what happens when one man can galvanize a particular sentiment or a fears anger of a group of individual and harness those feelings for himself right for his own gain. Right. That's one lesson. And what happens when we trivialize what this person does for so many years that it becomes normalized? Right. And then it's weaponized against you and against your country. And I think that's what he did. And that's what, thankfully, through luck, right? Right. Um, as well as the tremendous bravery of a group of men and women who fought back, that we were not thwarted in doing that which our Constitution tells us to do on a particular day, which is certify a presidential election. Thinking sometimes about what would have happened if they were able to do harm to one or several people. What would have happened if they were able to get into the chamber and get the ballots or hold members of Congress hostage. Would Donald Trump have then declared martial law? And we be in a state of emergency still without an inauguration? I mean, what what would have been the next steps if he had been successful? I think about this all the time. Mm -hmm. I just feel like that we got very lucky. We got lucky on the 6th that more people didn't die. We got lucky that senators and members of Congress weren't killed. Mm -hmm. Um, And we got lucky in the days leading up to that, that the efforts to overturn the election were not successful. I mean, if you had fewer Democratic governors, if the governors of Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, you know, if one of those three lost in 18... What would have happened right. if right. the Georgia governor, you know, he's a Republican, but if he had not stood up and that put pressure on Arizona to behave differently, he could have gotten away with this. The president speaking to the Pennsylvania legislature yeah, and yeah. trying to get them to change their opinion or all those court cases. And some of which had uh, members of the bench that the president put on the bench who are willing to stand up to him. It seems like the only people not willing to stand up to him is the Senate and the House, right? It's true. Where are you? There's a lot of quotes from you mm-hmm. that have already become famous. And, and you know, that's crazy, right? No. Oh, stand by. You're getting a lecture because now you're trivializing your contribution to this very important historical I so. moment. I guess so, yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. Okay. But one of the things you said is we didn't need more witnesses. We needed more senators with spines. I was surprised that there were as many Republican votes as there were. Were you? I was like, yeah, I thought seven votes on the Republican side is some kind of repudiation. It is not. It's a majority, right? It's a pretty big majority. I'm not sure there's 57 votes in the United States Senate for anything else. 
you know, Mm -hmm. maybe a few nominations. But those are Americans from very different ideological points of view coming together to reject something. And what I think is encouraging for me and that the House managers should be very proud of is you convince people, you know, you moved Bill Cassidy. Yeah. You know, I can recall him pacing in the back. Oh, wow. How wild. Yeah. What a moment. What a moment. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the more I think about watching Republican members nodding their head in agreement with me and a couple tearing up who were not the ones that voted with us. I think that stays with me more and wondering what's going on in their souls right now. Did you go into this exercise thinking that acquittal was likely or did you go into it thinking I am here to persuade? How did you approach it? I think all of the impeachment managers actually went into it with the mind frame of an acquittal is likely, but miracles happen. Yeah. And potentially the overwhelming evidence will sway sufficient numbers of senators that they will just have this overwhelming rush of duty and loyalty to the Constitution and their oath and to our democracy, and we'll win. So it was heartbreaking when we lost, right? So when you came back with the vote, everyone was kind of like, oh, this is a fait accompli. But we went back into that conference room and, you know, there were tears Mm -hmm. because, you know, all of us like to be winners. Sure. (laughs) But the fact that what it said about our country, you know, I think some of us were hoping that we would be a House judiciary vote against Richard Nixon. Saying aye, all those opposed, no. Right. Mm hmm where there would just be the snowball in which yes. um, members would just say, you've just gone too far. Mr. Kastenmeier. Aye. Mr. Edwards. Aye. Mr. Hungate. Aye. Mr. Conyers. Aye. And that didn't happen, and that was very disappointing. But the fact that you thought that it might suggest that you have faith in the country. Which is which is interesting for me because I'm not an optimistic person. You're not. That's so interesting. No, I'm a New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker, <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm a Caribbean person. And Caribbean people are kind of like you make your own destiny. You know, nobody's going to give you anything. Right. Nobody does you good when you greet each other. We don't say I'm fantastic. I'm wonderful because that's tempting fate. Uh, and someone's going to snatch some goodness away from you. So I'm not an optimistic person. I'm really a pragmatist, a realist. But, you know, Barbara Jordan says, my faith in the Constitution is complete. And I believe that. And you believe that we can still realize what the potential that's sort of embedded in the Constitution. Right, right. I'm always telling my children, right? You know, there are these millennials that think about, you know, they come to me and they're like, oh, I'm not happy at my job right now. And I'm like, who told you you're supposed to be happy? Who told you? It's the pursuit of happiness that we're working on, not actual happiness. That doesn't really happen. It's the pursuit of that goal. 
So yeah, and putting yeah. a lot of effort into something that you know that matters. You know, that's sort of I mean exactly. I've noticed that we're we're the exact same age. And that's something that I have learned. Because mm-hmm. in, in, in when you do achieve what you set out to do, that's not as rewarding as putting a lot of hard work into the effort to get there. How do you feel at the end of the trial now that it's over about your own efforts and the efforts of your team? I think I'm still processing it. I think sure. I'm still processing January 6th. Yeah. I had a moment this weekend that I didn't think I would still have where I kind of, you know, welled up a little bit about it, thinking about what happened. So having flashes still of what happened during the trial, I feel, and I don't want to trivialize our servicemen and women, but feeling like you served your country, like you did some duty. When you talk about you're doing a good deed, it's about public service. And I think about those staffers who they watched hundreds of hours of video trying to get the right pieces and the right portions and um, going through evidence and the, all of the emails and testimony that people gave us because they're dedicated to public service. All of them could be other places, mm-hmm. you know, making much more money, but they are here working in Congress because they care. When the attack happened on January 6th, one of the things I was grateful for in my own office was that none of our young people were there that day. Oh, that right? I was concerned that would kind of thwart the idealistic belief of young people if they had been through something like that so early in their career. When I looked around, I was like, oh, it's just us old geezers in here right now, just the OGs. <laughs> We've seen it all. <laughs> the old gangsters. You were in the Capitol on September 11th. Is that right? Yeah. I was a staffer September 11th. Right. We were one of the few committees that's actually in the Capitol. Right. And so my office faced the West Lawn, the West Front, okay. which is facing the mall on September 11th. And that's exactly where um, the first breach on January 6th was was in that West Front facing the mall. Right. That's the windows that we've all seen mm-hmm. busted in. Right. Which are still boarded up. I know. It's like so chilling. Mm-hmm. Was there a person or a theory that you were channeling while you were making your presentations in the Senate? I don't think I was necessarily channeling anything. I definitely was trying to speak to 100 senators, Mm -hmm. not speaking to any one group, Mm -hmm. but really speaking to the institution of the Senate. So being very mindful of not calling the former President Trump, right, but calling him the president, using words and phrases that I felt would speak to those senators that we were trying to persuade. So using words like loyalty, duty, love of country, dereliction of duty, which I felt were more Republican in nature than words that Democrats usually utilize. Also being very careful of having the evidence speak for itself and not to be preaching to people. Right. Uh Uh-huh. Was important to me not to sermonize. 
And I think all of the impeachment managers were really good about in our discussions with each other, stripping out words and stripping out phrases that was us mm -hmm. and not the events and not the evidence, the demonstrative evidence itself. Right. For I was, at least I was nervous for maybe the first 30 seconds, minute. And then I actually felt that I became lost in what I was presenting. I really was not thinking about who was watching um, so much as kind of trying to be what happened and let them feel and remind them of not only what happened, what, but their oath as well. And their love of country, hopefully that, that that's there as well. That is a good place to take a break. When we get back, we'll talk more about the events in your career that led you to those moments in the impeachment trial, including switching from Republican to the Democratic Party. That's when we get back on Just Something About Her. Welcome to Just Something About Her. We are here with Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett from the Virgin Islands. So I understand that you started your career as a Republican. Mm -hmm. You know, I came from a Republican family. It was when I started working on Capitol Hill. I worked for Democratic Congressman Leon Panetta. Uh -huh. So I think we were probably at some point like on the Hill at the same time. But what drew you to the Republican Party in the first place and why did you leave? Maybe rebellion. You know, for my family. To become a Republican? Just trying to be contrary. Yeah, just being contrary. I went to high school in California, and I felt like being a Republican was sort of contrary to the environment that I was into. Yeah. It was rebellious. Listen, my uncles in the Virgin Islands, after Vietnam War, after school, went in the fields to organize cane cutters into unions. Hmm. So our family is very democratic, you know, mm -hmm. but that also has some tension with other Caribbean values that are Republican. Mm -hmm. And in the Virgin Islands, the beginning of the Democratic Party was a very class distinction that only the upper or middle class light-skinned people on the island were Democrats. Really? And the bootstrap entrepreneur, dark-skinned individuals were Republicans. Mm -hmm. They did not have access to the Democratic Party. And I can recall when I was about to go to the Justice Department and you had, are getting your political appointment. And what year is this? So this is 2001, okay. after September 11th. And I was meeting with the White House personnel, and I recall her asking me, what kind of Republican are you? Mm -hmm. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, well, what would you identify yourself as? Are you a Reaganite? Are you a Rockefeller Republican? And I said, I'd say I'm more like a Malcolm X Republican. She's like, oh, I get that all the time. The Malcolm X Republicans. <laughs> she now she was a Mormon from Utah, and it like she nearly choked. Oh my god! When I said that, 
And I was like, yeah, you know, I believe in, you know, small business and entrepreneurship and community engagement. And I definitely believe in, you know, the right to bear arms, particularly in the Black community. We need that. We need to protect ourselves. That was always like the big joke in the office that Stacey's the Malcolm X Republican. It's amazing. <laughs> so why did you leave? You left before you uh, ran for office yourself? Oh, yeah. I mean, years before, I just couldn't have reasonable conversations with people anymore in the Republican Party. Because of the Trump elements that were sort of emerging at that oh, point? Oh, way before that. But like what, what we now think of as Trump elements or like right. what kind of things were come up in conversation that you didn't? Oh, you know, this is like 2005, mm-hmm. 2006. Immigration. Immigration. That, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. The anti-immigration stuff starts you know, to emerge. Yeah. Anti-immigration stuff started already then. Mm-hmm. You know, discussions about affirmative action. Race issues, mm-hmm. primarily. Yeah. That made me very, very angry, very uncomfortable. And do you have a theory about why that happened? You know, I come to the conclusion that the country is is no longer going to be majority white very soon. And Mm -hmm. some, you know, there are a lot of white people that see their way of life uh, disappearing and they cannot come to terms with that. Even if, if some of those people, I think, don't consciously view it that way, that's like what's happening is the Republican Party became the home for those who want things to go back to the way they were when white people right. were more in charge. Sure. Is that what you felt was happening at the, in the time or what? I could see that. Mm-hmm. And then I also was very concerned about a lack of social responsibility. That those of us who have and mm-hmm. have received have a responsibility for those who have not or do not. I see. I think that that's part of my Christian values that one has to reach back and support others. This callous notion that people are uh, left to their own devices without looking at the intrinsic and the institutional impediments that keep them from having that. Mm -hmm. I tell Republican friends, and particularly those that are pro-life, that I have great concern with people whose Christian sense of right ends once someone comes out of the womb, that your concern for an individual ends after they're born. Be pro-life, but you need to be pro-life throughout my Black son's entire life. Right. Right. <laughs> not for him to be born, but for him to stay alive. Stay alive, yes. To, to stay alive once he becomes 17. Right. Beyond that, look at, you know, Tamir Rice. Yeah. Right. Do you think that it's in your power to make a difference just by how you engage in the Congress or how individuals, mm-hmm. you know, choose to engage in the democracy right now? I see some encouraging signs. The day before January 6th, I was in Georgia for the Georgia runoffs. Mm-hmm. And that was a real victory for democracy. You know, so many people voted. The elections came off without a hitch. It was record setting. It was right. all of that. All that stuff was working. And then the next morning, this. Right. You know, it's so funny during the attack when they brought all of the members into one location, you know, they're like, we have a secure location. Mm -hmm. I didn't stay very long, but while I was there, the results came in on the second race. On the Ossoff seat. On the Ossoff seat. And, uh, you know, we were like, hey, announce it really loud in the room. Let's see what the reaction is. 
because, you know, there were Republic, a lot of Republicans right. in there as well. It's like, hey, I dare you to look at your phone and be really loud and be like, hey, the election was called. <laughs> so what happened? Did they, did they do they were like, oh, I don't know if that's a really good idea right now. We <laughs> want to keep our voices now. We don't need to be drawing any attention to ourselves. <laughs> It's funny because I worked for President Clinton and President Obama, and there are both times in both of their presidencies where people said, like, does the United States president even matter anymore? They don't have that much power. Uh, mm-hmm. And then you see the damage that can happen when it is in one person that, you know, there are all these things in America that never get extinguished. So yes. I'd like to think that on the other side, people of goodwill can have a big impact, too. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for defending the republic. Continue to do that. And I hope like we could meet in person someday, maybe get drinks on Capitol Hill when that's a thing. That'd be awesome. Hey, you know, the Virgin Islands, our greatest product is rum. So sign me up. You got it, girl. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, Sarah, are you there? Yeah, I just learned so much from that conversation. <laughs> oh, my God. We learned so much. Yeah. I was so bummed that she had to go. I think she had to go vote. Um, I know she did. You could see her voting in between some of the questions you were asking. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was really fascinating. I have a lot to share, but tell me your reactions first. Well, it actually struck me a lot. Um, She mentioned how she was very particular with her wording and the way in which she delivered her impeachment trial speeches. Um, and I thought it was really interesting because a lot of what I was listening to was her really leaning into her individual experience, despite that not being something that maybe some or most of the senators she was trying to appeal to could relate to. You know, she talked a lot about being a Black woman. She talked a lot about her upbringing in Brooklyn, in the projects. And I think it's just important to remember that when we lean into our authentic experiences, um, I think you talk about this a lot, it is relatable, even if you don't share that experience. Um, And so that was just really powerful to watch and interesting to hear from her perspective, how she kind of straddled those two approaches. I got a lot out of this conversation. I felt like it made me step back and appreciate not just how big a moment January 6th was, but how... The story of America, it's never complete, right? Mm-hmm. And that people like Stacey Plaskett are writing the next chapter of it. I think we need to talk about January 6th because it was so norm-bending and mm-hmm. dangerous and reckless and unprecedented that it's easy to trivialize along with some of Trump's more odious but not as impactful behavior. and. When you speak of it as she does, it forces us to put it in the proper context of history. And I think that's important to do. But what's inspiring about talking to her is she told the story about Virgin Islands that I just didn't know at all. You know, I think because of Hamilton, we know about Alexander Hamilton coming from the Virgin Islands, going to America, the story of Denmark Vesey, the former slave who was a free man who came to America to try to help with abolition. And now Stacey Puskett has returned to the home of her family to represent them and tell their story. And just as you see in, you know, the continental U.S., indigenous rights really starting to emerge as an important issue that's overdue and being dealt with, 
I, I think this may be the next thing, right? Especially I think of moments like, you know, Hurricane Maria when it was really put yeah. in stark relief, how, you know, Puerto Rico and Virgin Islands was very much affected by Hurricane Maria as well. They just didn't have the resources that they would have had they been given equal rights to the rest of the states. Yeah, they don't have representation. And right. that was baked in at the beginning when the United States acquired that territory. I mean, in addition to Stacey Poskett having an important role in history because she was part of that trial, she's using this platform to tell us another story about America that we need to pay attention to. And, you know, had Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, like her, is the child of a parent from a U.S. territory, Puerto Rico in this case, you know, he told the story of an American who came from the territories. She's now returned there and is telling the story to us of this island, of the people that live there, of the rights that they deserve. You know, it really opens this whole other world. It makes me curious <laughs> and hopeful about mm -hmm. the future. And also for all of us just to kind of pause and take stock that we're living in a really difficult time, but a historic time. And I think that how everyone chooses to engage in the world can matter here. You know, Stacey Plaskett's using her platform to talk about the Virgin Islands, but each of us can do something that helps to shore up the Republic. And, you know, we should feel some kind of privilege and responsibility about this time. It just goes to show you her sense of duty to the public service. One thing I do want to mention, because she had that very funny uh, back and forth, she said with a millennial about being happy versus the pursuit of happiness. <laughs> I don't want to yes. believe that one. I don't want to. I want to believe that happiness is attainable. <laughs> well, I think that you have to be happy with the... The pursuit? Yes, you have to be happy with the pursuit. This is something we talked to Glennon Doyle about, right? Right. That's what I was thinking. It's like, isn't being happy in the present the greatest revenge? That's what she called it. Yeah. And I think that it's like, if you put, if you put what Stacey and Glennon say together, mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think that Stacey's saying that you know, that it's not always supposed to be comfortable. And part of the, you know, thrill of life is the pursuit of the happiness and striving and doing your best. And then Glennon has the very good caution that when you get what you want, that thing, the thing that right. you think is going to make everything better, it doesn't. So like, don't worry about that thing. And instead, enjoy life. Enjoy the pursuit. Okay. That makes sense. That makes me feel better. Two things. The goal is not as fulfilling as you think it's going to be. And you are dismissing the best parts of life along the way. Right. So soak it all up and enjoy life, but understand like doing your best work is rewarding in and of itself. Okay. I like it. I like the fusion of Glennon Doyle and Stacey Plaskett giving us advice on happiness. Look, that's what Just Something About Her is here to do. Good place to end. <laughs> All right. Bye. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Congresswoman Plaskett for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. Aaliyah Jackson and D. Scott Carroll engineer this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castro Russell is our executive producer. 